How do we know God is even real? Are the Gospels even reliable? Where do I go for answers? What is Christian apologetics? Welcome to the Reason Together podcast. The place for your apologetic questions. With Walter Feldman. This is a continuation episode. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to stop here and go back and listen to that episode. We talked about some terms that will help you understand where I come from while looking at the scriptures. So this was the first verse that I heard that made me wonder if we're actually using the scripture in its right context. A few weeks back, I was sitting at a church during worship, and the worship leader used this during their prayer. Then I remembered about the real context of this verse. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Matthew 18.20 We all have heard this verse used during prayer. I have used this verse during prayer, using it like God is there among a group of believers more than for an individual. When I decided to look at this verse, I came to the realization that we have been using it in its wrong context. Let's look at the verse in context with the passage. We're going to Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. I also encourage you to pause this right here. Grab your Bible. Don't just take my word on the matter. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I truly tell you, If two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. So we find that this passage starts with a brother in Christ who has sinned. We find the command order a Christian is supposed to follow. We are to go to him directly in private and talk to him about his actions in love and gentleness. And if he listens to what you said, good, go and tell no one else. But then if he does not listen to you and your reasons, then bring two or three with you so that he might realize you are not alone in thinking about his wrongdoing. If he still does not listen, then you are supposed to go to the church. I believe by quote unquote the church in this passage, he is talking about the pastor or elders. Going back to why you brought two or three people with you is so your testimony to the elders may have more validity. Side note, even Jesus used witnesses to prove his resurrection when he appeared to the 500. J. Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective. He looked at that passage and it holds to what we find today. The fact that they say there was 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ and many of them were still alive when the book was written. They could have just went and asked if any of those 500 or if a majority of those 500 would have been like, no, Jesus never appeared to us then we wouldn't know the Bible and the authors were lying. Back to the explanation of our passage. Then we find that you and the elders are to go to him, and if he does not listen, 
we are to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. If we remember, a Gentile was a term used for an outsider or someone who is not chosen. And Matthew calls him a tax collector here because tax collectors were the lowliest of the society they lived in. Matthew knew this because he himself was a tax collector and knew how they were treated firsthand. Then he said, what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what we loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Heaven, meaning that whatever punishment you and the elders come to, God will be in agreement in heaven. Then we see our key verse, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. So what we see through context that this verse is dealing with church discipline and has nothing to do with the gathering together of saints because we're actually told go pray in our closet in the same letter of Matthew. In chapter 6 verse 6, Jesus would not have told his disciples or us to pray alone if the Holy Spirit was not present with us no matter how much brothers and sisters we have in agreement. Next, we move back to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 and 12. I know someone probably has this tattooed on them, or has a mug with this verse. If you do... I vote laser removal surgery. I'm just kidding. One day, I was sitting in a youth group, and the leader used this verse, and I read it in context right there, and without even thinking, I shouted out, CONTEXT! I quickly realized what I did, and I regretted not going to him in private afterwards. But the truth still stands, even when I did not go about it correctly. To get an understanding of this verse, we need to look at who this was written to and what they were going through. Verse 1 of chapter 29 said, This is the text of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders. The priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. So now we can skip down to verse 8. We're going to go through verse 8 through verse 14. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your dividers deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says, When seventy years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you, and will confirm my promise concerning you, to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me, and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, this is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. So let's break this down. So we heard that this letter is from the prophet Jeremiah to the Jews who are exiled into Babylon. 
He warns them of the quote-unquote prophets who are falsely prophesying in the name of God. And Jeremiah gave them a time period in which they will be in Babylon, that God will return them home after 70 years. Then our key verse, for I know the plans I have for you, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. But people are more prone to use the NIV translation of this verse, which states, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in the future. The downfall of using this quote alone makes us think this is a promise to every Christian when we clearly see this was directed for the Jews at this specific time. We can use the verse as I said it in the Christian Standard Version, which was, For I know the plans I have for you, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, but to give you a future and a hope. Because it is for our well-being, but we still have to preface this with the idea that our well-being might not be here on earth, but in heaven. The hard part of using this quote in the NIV is the word prosper. The word prosper in the Merriam-Webster dictionary is defined as to succeed in an enterprise or activity, especially to achieve economic success, when that was not what he meant by writing this. He did promise to return the Jews to their former glory and home. We're going to look at our final scripture for today. We have heard someone trout out this anytime you do not agree with them, and they know you are a Christian. I've heard this from progressive Christians also because they lean more towards the idea that everyone's truth is real, and everyone's truth is true. Matthew 7.1 Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Haven't we all heard that after telling someone they're wrong, especially when it comes to the topic of homosexuality or abortion? But let's look at it like we have been. Say it with me. In context. Matthew 7, starting at verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we see Jesus say not to judge. Then he continues and says, The way you judge others, you will be judged by. When we look at our brothers and sisters and try to remove a speck out of their eye, when we have a log in ours, then we are called a hypocrite because we are supposed to remove the log in our own eyes before helping our brother. This is nothing about me judging someone rightfully, but me judging someone hypocritically. Hypocrisy is defined as the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform to it. Jesus was telling us not to judge when we are dealing with the same sin. We can tell someone it is still wrong to be in that sin, but to pass judgment is different. For example, if I dealt with a pornography addiction, I cannot judge my friend for it, but I can let them know it is still wrong, even if my life does not show it. But I now would have to do it from the same level and have humility and become humble in front of my brother or sister. 
Before we leave today, I again want to take a moment and let you know about a program from Impact360. They have a leap year program. It is a nine month course on a campus in beautiful Georgia where kids around 18 to 19 are taught how to defend their faith and they learn of other faiths like Mormonism and Islam so they can refute the claims from them and the claims of professors when they go to college. You might be thinking, why would I not send my kids straight to college right out of high school? It might be so they don't forget something, right? But colleges like Harvard actually encourage a leap year for these kids to mature, or if you're my pastor, mature. They find that kids who take a year off actually change majors less and get better grades. I would encourage you to look at them at impact360.org. I am in no way sponsored by Impact360. I fully believe in the mission and the work that these people are doing down in Georgia. Like Frank Turk says, why are these kids talked out of it? Because they were never talked into it.